Welcome to The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. Now there's a whole category of thinking about implicit bias or unconscious bias and how it embeds itself in our brains and how it predicts our behavior, but also how we can change it. We can actually reprime our brains. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet, creating a future environment of hope. Today, the United States is transforming into a majority-minority nation. By around 2020, more than half the nation's children are projected to be part of a minority racial or ethnic group. The overall population will follow suit within 20 years. Though no one group will be dominant by size, Hispanics will soon be the country's leading ethnic group. This demographic shift is seismic. In nature, Diversity is the source of stability, innovation, and resilience. It's also true in economies and cultures. But then again, humanity can also be intensely tribal and fractious, and race and ethnicity have long been used by elites to divide and conquer. It's been said that the only thing that could unite us as a species would be space invaders. However, what is increasingly going to unite us is the threat to our common home as Earthlings. In order to preserve the living systems we all rely on, we're being urgently called upon to reach out across our differences, to build beloved community and peaceful coexistence. Today, a new generation of activists is reframing the conversation about race, bringing new tools to the table, and calling on each of us to confront our own unconscious bias. After all, race is a social construct, not a biological reality and our views can and do change. This is Raced and Classed, the journey from diversity to equity, with Rinku Sen, Saru Jayaraman, and Malkia Amala Cyril. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. I was an immigrant kid, eldest immigrant child. I grew up in very, very white suburbs. I found my first true sense of belonging in this country when I discovered racial justice work. And all that has made race the abiding concern of my adult life. When Rinku Sen and her family immigrated to the United States from India in 1965, it was possible only because of the passage of the Immigration and Nationality Act. The new law barred discrimination based on race, and ended an 80-year ban on Asian immigrants. It was also the height of the civil rights movement when leaders such as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. urged white America to wake up to the reality of racial discrimination and injustice and to bring it to an end. 
Today, Rinku Sen is one of the leading voices in the racial justice movement. She shares Dr. King's view that race is a part of everything, but not all of anything. Rinku Sen spoke at a Bioneers conference. He developed a sort of analysis of race and poverty, race and class, and he got involved in the janitor strike and other workers' organizations. He started to understand something about race and colonialism and militarism and took a position against the Vietnam War. And so even if you don't start with an understanding that race and other things sometimes intersect, that happens for us if we do this work for long enough. After doing race work for 30 years, Rinku Sen has continually seen how everything is connected, including race and class. This intersectionality can often be invisible, but not to those affected by it. As president and executive director of Race Forward, the Center for Racial Justice Innovation, Rinku Sen works to build on the legacy of the civil rights movement. She's helping reveal the unconscious bias all of us carry and to unearth the structural racism embedded in our institutions and culture. Race and gender, race and class, race and sexuality, race and nationality, and adding those lenses never wipes out my race lens because it doesn't have to. It just changes the picture that I see. And once I have a fuller picture, I can then make decisions about which parts of that picture I'm gonna act on, and I can be accountable for those choices and those decisions. Doing this work made one thing crystal clear to Rinku Sen. There is no general agreement on what racism is. That lack of understanding has led to differing definitions of what constitutes racial justice. Her organization defines racial justice as the systematic fair treatment of people of all races in ways that produce equitable opportunities and outcomes for everybody. And that is quite different from a definition of racial justice that is something like, I won't see color. That's the colorblindness definition of racial justice. Or I will be better to people and I'll just deal with myself. You know, I can't influence anybody else, but I can deal with myself. That's an individualized notion of how we get to racial justice. And individuals are important. But we're all part of a system, and the system reinforces and generates our behavior. It regulates our behavior. And so defining racism not just as intentional, individual, and overt, but also as systemic and hidden and unconscious is a really critical, fundamental piece of work. And one thing that I have learned over time is that people do not know. They do not know. They don't have the language. They may know something at the gut level, but they don't know how to describe it. They don't have the tools to think about what's the relationship between an individual and a system and a structure. And so one way that my approach to the work has really changed over the years is that I break things down a lot more than I used to. When Rinku Sen and Race Forward organized a campaign called Drop the I-Word, they were aiming to eliminate the use of the word illegal when discussing immigrants. They focused much of their efforts on the media. Many editors and reporters reacted by saying they weren't intending to be racist. However, studies clearly showed an increase in the perception of immigrants as illegal, accompanied by a rise in hate crimes against Latinos. 
As a result of the campaign, some news outlets and journalist associations have now stopped using the term. In 2016, the Library of Congress banned the term illegal aliens. Rinku Sen says this is a good example of how what matters most is impact, not intention. And it's a disturbing instance of how deep our implicit and unconscious bias really goes. And this is partly because we know things about the human brain and racial bias that we didn't know 15 or 20 and certainly not 50 years ago. Now there's a whole category of thinking about implicit bias or unconscious bias and how it embeds itself in our brains and how it predicts our behavior, but also how we can change it. We can actually reprime our brains. We can remove the opportunity for us and other people to exercise their bias by doing often very simple things. And we can also make people stop and think. One example of removing the opportunity to exercise bias happens in employment. There's a thing called name-based discrimination. So, you know, you see what you peg as a black person's name or a Latino name, and your assessment of that person's application for employment kicks in in a negative way. If the HR department in an institution removes the names before turning over the best resumes to whoever's doing the hiring, you've removed the opportunity for that piece of bias to kick in at that stage of the application process. Making people stop and think is a little more robust, and that requires creating actual new rules. We have a tool called the Racial Equity Impact Assessment operates a lot like environmental impact assessments. You study before you make a move what its effect is going to be, and then you decide whether or not you're going to go ahead with that move. That tool is available on our website, raceforward.org, racial equity impact assessment, and institutions that use it before they go in the status quo inertia mode of doing what we've always done, they run those ideas through that analysis and they often do something different. In Minneapolis, the school board passed a policy that requires them to do such an analysis of every decision they make that affects student learning and resource allocation. So they're doing it all the time. In Iowa, the state legislature adopted that practice for all of their criminal justice decisions because they know that we've got people of color hugely disproportionately moving into prisons. We don't want to make that worse. Let's look at each of our proposals and see what the effect is going to be. So that's a very practical tool. It just makes you stop and think. And sometimes that is enough to interrupt the unintentional biases that we all have. At a Bioneers conference, Rinku Sen facilitated a conversation with national organizers about how their groups and allies are bringing a race frame to bear on movements that have until now been predominantly white. That lens is intersectional. Saru Jayaraman is director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. She also co-founded and co-directs Restaurant Opportunities Centers United in New York. ROC, called ROCK, has organized restaurant workers and launched cooperatively owned restaurants. The nonprofit group also conducts research and policy work that is playing a game-changing role by showing how people of color are disproportionately affected by low wages and income inequality structural racism in a class context. Research was critical both to shift the existing mainstream conversations around 
income inequality, so in particular the minimum wage conversation, it was also critical to actually create a whole new sphere of conversation around segregation by race in the largest economic sectors of our country. We at Rock United have fought against the fact that the minimum wage for tipped workers in this country is still $2.13 an hour, that 6 million people in the United States can legally be paid $2.13 an hour. For 100 years, the labor movement essentially struck a deal with the Restaurant Association, essentially saying, okay, yes, the minimum wage will go up as long as the tipped workers are left out. I wrote a New York Times op-ed that actually indicated the history of this, which through research we found was that tipping didn't actually originate in the United States, originated in Europe. When it first came to the States in the 1860s, 1870s, there was a massive populist movement against tipping, saying that this is a vestige of the feudal system, it is undemocratic, it's un-American. Two industries in America squashed that movement, the restaurant industry and the Pullman Train Company, both of which wanted the right to hire newly freed slaves and not pay them anything and let them live on customer tips. And that idea was codified into the first minimum wage law in 1938 under the New Deal, which said you have the right either to a wage or to tips, meaning the first wage for tipped workers was zero, and we've gone from zero to $2.13 an hour over a 100-year period. When we exposed this, it became harder and harder even for our own friends and allies on the left and in the labor movement to continue to make these compromises, knowing that there's an ugly racialized history to this tip minimum wage. And we've had a lot of success. And uh, after I wrote my op-ed, the New York Times editorial board came out in support of full elimination of the lower wage for tipped workers. Congress has come out in support of full elimination of the lower wage for tipped workers. And we've got eight states around the country that are moving legislation to eliminate. So that's one example of how research helped us to expose an ugly history. Saru Jayaraman's group also exposed how unconscious biases in hiring practices by the restaurant industry routinely result in a segregated workplace where employees are stratified by race. While white workers hold most of the higher wage positions in fine dining and bartending, people of color are relegated to lower level positions and usually out of sight. Jayaraman said the issues had not been exposed or addressed by the larger labor movement. Rock offered employers a variety of changes they can make to overcome racial biases and to promote racial equity. Another issue seldom seen through a race lens is the disproportionate effect big changes in the economy and technology have on people of color. Malkia Amala Cyril has been working to get this story out. She's director and founder of the Center for Media Justice and co-founder of Media Action Grassroots Network, which organizes to ensure media access, rights, and representation for marginalized communities. Because this story is about the media, it's not one the media have wanted to tell. So as housing markets change, as a direct result of this economic transition, people of color are going to be pushed out, right? As job markets change, as the future of work changes, as a direct result of the monetization of data and the shifting of how we work, geography, the speed at which digital technologies make us able to work, you know, all of that those changes directly affect people of color. We had all of these stories that needed to be told about how our lives were going to change as a result of this economic transition. But guess what? The story was about the media. They weren't going to report on themselves, <laughs> right? So we had a hostile environment to telling the story. 
from the people who were slated to tell the story. You know, so then you start hearing all these stories about the digital divide. And what the digital divide meant at that time was that black people and other people of color and poor people didn't have the internet and they needed to have it, they needed to adapt the internet. All you're saying is you want these companies to get paid. You want a bigger consumer base. We wanted to have a different conversation about access. So we had to um, partner with the Social Science Research Council to start telling a different story about internet access through the perspective of what cities had a responsibility to do mm. and what counties and public institutions had a responsibility to do because that's a different conversation. We generated 350 stories all across the country. Those stories actually went to the White House and became the basis for the BTOP program, which is the Broadband Technology Opportunity Program, funded a bunch of access sites all across the country. And so we began then to shape a conversation that today has, I think, utterly changed the way we talk about the Internet and who has access to it and who doesn't. Malkia Amala Cyril, changing the story and changing the world. When it comes to achieving racial justice, Rinku Sen says that these successes are an example of how rising expectations among people of color who've long been marginalized and pushed to the sidelines are now moving them to the radical center. More from her when we return. This is Raced and Classed, the journey from diversity to equity. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Explore all available Bioneers radio shows, video programming, and more from Rinku Sen. Please visit Bioneers.org. Rinku Sen believes we're in a movement moment, an epic opportunity for a new understanding about race. The Black Lives Matter movement has taken the national stage. A Latino spring is rising rapidly. Indigenous communities are making their voices heard. Change is happening everywhere. We can see it in the fast food strikes and lots of labor organizing. We can see it, obviously, in the movement for black lives and in a multiracial effort to reform police departments and to change the nature of policing. In education, there's so much work to change disciplinary policies and to break the school-to-prison pipeline or the cradle-to-prison pipeline led by young people and their families, their friends who love them. That work has really made a huge difference. School-to-prison pipeline is not a phrase that many people knew 10 years ago, but in the last five years, there have been hundreds, maybe thousands of newspaper articles with that particular phrase, which indicates a particular kind of structural analysis, right? There's a relationship between the education system and the criminal justice system, and it's a raced relationship and a relationship that we have to break apart. There's a lot of great Native organizing around reproductive justice, around education, around media justice and access 
access to broadband and telephones and the means of communication around the representation of Native people, the debate over the Washington NFL team's name. There's a great organization out of Ohio, the Ohio Students Association, that started a campaign called Wear a Culture, Not a Costume. Every year around Halloween, white folks host these parties and they put on the black face and the red face and they just have no critical analysis of why you wouldn't want to do that and what message that sends out to actual black people and native people. So that cultural uh, work is very exciting to me. So on almost every issue, there is something really exciting happening. And on racial justice, it's often not happening in the traditional places, the big coastal cities. It's happening in Montana and Idaho and North Carolina and Louisiana and rural communities, places where we're not necessarily looking, but where I think some of the most exciting work and exciting stories are coming from. Rinku Sen says the goal is equity, not diversity. She observes that many diversity initiatives are doomed to fail. No matter how many people of color are in the room, their inclusion is tokenism unless they have the ability to shape the mission, strategy, and activities of organizations. Rinku Sen cites the Green 2.0 report as a good example. The report exposed how few people of color led or staffed environmental and non-governmental organizations. This inequity doesn't reflect the reality that communities of color are disproportionately affected by toxic pollution, climate disruption, and other severe environmental harms, the very forefront of environmental justice struggles, the intersection of race and class. Racism is at the root of environmental degradation. It drives consumption and sprawl while providing impunity for governments and corporations that engage in destructive behavior. I want you to consider the suburbs that I grew up in. Much of my childhood, I lived in the town next to a Levittown. Levittowns were post-war suburbs named after their creator, their designer, Levitt. And they were so white, even in the 70s when my family was living in them, because there had been policies for decades that kept black families out in particular. Very explicit, restrictive covenants, all kinds of other regulations. Then the Fair Housing Act said, you can't do that anymore, that is illegal and the people of color came, and the white people fled. Where did they flee to? They didn't go live in the country. They built suburbs. Suburbs are notoriously bad for the environment. Motor vehicle use in this country doubled between 1970 and 1990. And that doesn't even get us to the loss of land, the loss of wildlife, and all the water that is required for those nice green lawns. The siting of sources of pollution has long been known to be raced and classed. People of color both in the U.S. and all over the globe. We are hit first and worst, but nobody pays attention, and by nobody, I mean white people. People of color are not just victims of that behavior, but we are agents too. Organizations of color lead the fight for environmental remediation, for alternative energy systems, for change of all kinds, but quite often, if our lens, our environmental lens doesn't include communities of color, we forget that, and we fail to give them adequate credit and support their work. We ignore these realities at the peril of the earth and of humanity. Racism makes everything worse, including environmental degradation, but racial justice makes everything better, including environmental support. 
Part of the problem is that we don't know how to talk about race with each other. I've taken the liberty of just noting some of the things that white people say to me and what I actually hear. I know you don't intend for me to hear these things, but I want you to know what I actually hear. So people say, we just can't find any people of color to fill these positions. I hear, I can't be bothered to look behind the dozens of white people I already know. If the planet is going down, this is one of my favorites. None of this other stuff matters. Race, class, whatever. What I hear is this. I don't care how much you suffer before the apocalypse comes, but I'm not racist. <laughs> I know that this works the other way, too, and that when I say something like, it's not about you, it's the system, what they hear is, you're racist. <laughs> so the thing is, we're talking across each other, and everybody is obsessed with finding the racist. Who is the racist? Not being the racist. So let's start over. One thing I'd love to see over the next five years is a real acknowledgement throughout all of the social justice movements, of which I consider environmentalism one, that race is in fact a part of that movement, that it's key to really understanding what the situation is that we're dealing with in all of its complexity. And it's also key to coming up with the right solutions so that we're solving problems for everybody. If we can just get good with the idea that everything has a racial dimension, our job is to find it and then address it. That the anxiety that really everybody feels when race comes up, that that anxiety will release itself and then we'll take a huge leap forward in the work. Raced and classed, the journey from diversity to equity. You can see and hear more from Rinku Sen and Saru Jayaraman and explore more Bioneers radio programs, podcasts, and videos online at Bioneers.org. For information on attending the National Bioneers Conference and Bioneers events in your area, please visit Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Osabel. Written by Kenny Osabel. Senior producer and station relations, Stephanie Welch. Host and consulting producer, Neil Harvey. Program engineer, Emily Harris. Production assistants, Tina Rubio and Melanie Choi. Interview recording engineer, Jeff Westman. Our theme music is co-written by the Baca Forest people of Cameroon and Baca Beyond from the album East to West. All royalties from Baca compositions and performances go to the Baca Forest people through the charity Global Music Exchange. Find out more at globalmusicexchange.org. Additional music was made available by Sounds True at soundstrue.com and from Canyon Records at canyonrecords.com. For more music information, please visit bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters for this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 03. 
16.